This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Ranen Omer Sherman, who teaches at the University of Louisville, here to talk about his new book, Imagining the Kibbutz, Visions of Utopia in Literature and Film, published this year by the Pennsylvania State University Press. Ranen, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks very much, Jason. Well, it's great to have you. So let's start with a little background. Uh, Can you tell us what is the kibbutz? Absolutely. Um, For a very basic definition, I'll just start off by saying that this is the purest and most sustained form of socialism that the world has ever known. Um, The kibbutz, uh, which uh, we we can basically define that as the Hebrew word for communal settlement, was originally established as a rural community that was dedicated to mutual aid and social justice. It was a socioeconomic system based entirely on the principle of the joint ownership of property, quality, cooperation of production, consumption, education. In other words, it was the the ideal fulfillment of the concept from each according to his or her ability to each according to his or her needs. And the first kibbutz team were actually founded several decades before Israel itself. Um, the very first of these is Deganya, which uh, comes from the Hebrew word Degan, meaning grain, and that was located just south of uh, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Kinneret, established in 1909 by a group of pioneers on land that was purchased by the Jewish National Fund. Deganya, as well as most kibbutzim of that era, were founded by young Jewish pioneers that came primarily from Eastern Europe for obvious reasons, because of the prevalence of communism and different variations on socialism that flourished in that part of the world. Um, the other thing that I, I would say that distinguishes that, that first effort is that um, they were years of tremendous struggles. Many of the immigrants um, found that they, they could not live up to the, the demands of living on the land. There was a lot of malaria. They had very little experience with uh, the demands of physical labor a general lack of agricultural know-how, scarcity of water, and and really a shortage of supporting funds, miserable living conditions. For that first generation, even a little bit afterwards, the kibbutz was not only a a place, right? It was also sort of an ideological project. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, The kibbutz, as I said, was about absolute equality in the beginning, and with varying degrees of success later on, there was also an idea of egalitarianism. 
that women and men would both have the same opportunity for fulfilling themselves by living and working on the land. And that's one of the primary reasons for uh, the collective children's education. Children are being raised for uh, a number of decades completely outside of the home, uh, freeing up men and women to uh, completely devote themselves to labor, except for a few hours, uh, very few hours of the day in which they could have contact with the children in the children's houses. The ideal of the kibbutz is actually reflected in in the physical layout of the kibbutz. If you've seen one kibbutz, um, even though they can vary in terms of uh, minor arrangements, most of them are laid out to a very similar plan. You have a residential area that encompasses usually very carefully tended members' homes and, and uh, tidy gardens. But the areas surrounding the home and inside the home are one of the primary places for the individual self-expression. Um, whatever choices a person wants to make to decorate their, in, their inside homes and, and exteriors. Children's houses and playgrounds for every age group. Uh, communal facilities uh, were primarily the dining hall, the auditorium, libraries, sometimes swimming pools that were introduced later on, tennis courts, medical clinics, especially for those that were isolated uh, from major cities and towns, laundries, groceries, and then adjacent to the living quarters would be sheds for the dairy cattle, modern chicken coops, uh, agricultural fields on the periphery, fish ponds also, orchards, usually just a short uh, tractor ride from the center. And uh, what soon can be quite spacious, quite expansive, to get around internally, people would tend to uh, walk or sometimes ride bicycles. The elderly and the disabled who were from the very beginning included in the um, design of Kibbutzim were, were provided to the disabled. And so the disabled and elderly, I meant to say, were afforded electric carts um, and, and their needs were taken care of. And they were also um, given opportunities to continue to work even after formal retirement so that they never felt that they were parasites in the community and had a sense of a vibrant connection to what was going on. So the book is um, not really a history of, of the kibbutz so much as a study of the imaginative portrayals of the kibbutz. What, what is the vision of utopia in, in the book's title? So visions of utopia reflects on the fact that what I see happening from the very beginning, and, and you're right to distinguish this as very much not a history. The history of the kibbutz uh, movement has been told by many others, uh, and a, a lot of people have focused on sociological aspects of the kibbutz, such as uh, the phenomenon of the children's house, um, its golden age, and its decline later on, and all sorts, even architectural studies of the kibbutz have been done. But what I noticed as a kibbutznik, as one who lived on kibbutz for 13 years, was that there was always a vibrant kind of literature of skepticism or questioning written by kibbutz insiders some of them very famous and well-known uh, outside of Israel and, and some lesser known. And uh, so imagining the kibbutz was really uh, about what happens when the, the hardcore reality, sometimes the disappointing re- reality of kibbutz, meets the writer's uh, imagination. Most of the works that I dealt with, but not all, were written by kibbutz insiders, some of them living their lives, entire lives in kibbutzim, or, or at least the uh, significant periods of their lives. Well, maybe we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's some interesting 
differences, I thought, between the insiders and the outsiders' representations. Uh, can you tell us just briefly about your 13 years on the kibbutz? What, what sort of stands out? Okay, so I uh, left uh, the United States as a 17-year-old on my own in uh, 1975, kind of a starry-eyed, naive teenager. For instance, I didn't really understand the concept of the Palestinians as a people. I think that is not atypical of many uh, Jews of my generation. But I was especially drawn to the idea of uh, starting a young kibbutz, a new kibbutz. I'd already spent time on, on a kibbutz as a volunteer in 1974. And when I graduated high school, college uh, just didn't seem right for me. And, and the idea of, of an adventure, the idea of uh, this kind of fulfill, fulfilling commitment, the idea of working on the land, especially settling the desert, which is where I ended up, was an incredible lure. And there are times in my life right now as an academic that I really can't shake myself from the nostalgia of those years because much of it was quite wonderful. What does a study of the kibbutz tell us about Israeli society more broadly? Okay, so I think that the kibbutz narrative essentially functions as a microcosm of the great drama of Israeli uh, society, which is the relationship between the individual and the collective, something that is not often thought about in the United States. Um, and, and I try to illuminate what I consider the deep structure of both Israeli society and the literature that responds to that society, which is the clash between individual desires and unyielding national imperatives, which sometimes requires the sacrifice, the literal sacrifice of the individual. One of the things that I encountered over the years, and this began for very personal reasons, I should say, um, when I was caught up in the kibbutz dream myself, there was a lot of euphoria, and there was, there was a time when I just felt that I was living a dream, but living in a very, very small society uh, can also uh, lead to a lot of doubt and, and moments of tension and estrangement. And I became uh, an enamored reader of almost old, very, very young. And I saw that a lot of the, uh, the, the issues of loneliness and alienation that I think a lot of us struggling to be part of the collective self were uh, beautifully explored in his narrative. And it was much, much later as an academic that I found how many other writers devoted themselves uh, to the idea of the kibbutz. One of the things that I discovered is that in the earliest kibbutz narratives of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, there the individual character, the hero, heroine, uh, the protagonist is always being tested. There's an important shift that happens later on where the collective itself seems to bear the burden of demonstrating the degree that it can accommodate the individual's aspirations and the individual's uh, weaknesses. And I think this demarcation begins in the 1960s because there's a growing restlessness, a youth movement that's sweeping through the entire world. And I think that the radical changes that we've seen with the kibbutz in very recent years, uh, the privatization model, the, the movement away from radical uh, fulfillment of the socialist idea uh, towards more kind of selfish, individual, egotistic model that began in the 1960s. Let's talk about some of the early portrayals. I thought that was an interesting chapter. Um, it was interesting to see an American Jewish writer uh, included in there, Meyer Levin, right? In, in the midst of the Great Depression, 
Uh, this right. is uh, the guy who wrote about Leopold and Loeb, the famous Chicago case. Uh, in the midst of the Great Depression, he's writing about um, this, you know, economic project in, in Israel. Is that right? That's correct. What 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 is very basically the story of of Yehuda? So Yehuda is very interesting to me, and I think kind of typical of what I saw in that generation with uh, uh, Israeli writers, or, or rather writers who came from Russia. He uh, is actually um, interested in the struggle of the individual to to adapt and to be part of, uh, of of the burden of the collective and remaking oneself. There was a lot of emphasis in the early kibbutz narrative, as in Zionism itself, of the individual being reborn by contact with the land. That's what it meant to be a chalut, to completely remake yourself and sort of wean yourself uh, or purge diaspora out of you, um, purge the galut out of you. And there's a, a sense of, uh, of of measuring up to this burden, of uh, measuring up to what's required of you. So, so the early the early portrayals put a lot of the emphasis on the individual journey. Is that right? Yes, and and already there's there's a lot of doubt, not just doubt about the individual, but also questions about whether uh, the collective would be able to accommodate even a transformed version of Jewishness, whether there would be any room for spirituality alongside, in a life that's completely devoted to solving all sorts of pragmatic problems, would there be any room for, um, for spirit and even cultural expression? Because uh, there was actual sort of uh, facial movement bias directed toward uh, imaginative expression. Uh, one was not supposed to come to the kibbutz to, to be a poet or a writer, or if so, then you had to be a, a kind of doctrinaire poet or writer. You weren't supposed to I- express ambivalence. Let's talk about chapter two. Um, to the extent that any of the writers um, that you that you talk about are household names, I would say Amos Oz is, is maybe you know the most well-known um, why is he so important to, to this genre? Okay, so first of all, Amos Oz was one of the first truly uh, dedicated kibbutz writers. There were others, but he um, was very interesting in that he fled to kibbutz as a very, very young person, uh, left behind um, a very intellectual household because he believed that what was happening authentically with Jews had nothing to do with city life. It was either in the Negev, in the desert, or it was in the Galilee. Um, that is where real Zionism was happening. And that's a myth that he, I think, adhered to until he actually found himself as a young person on kibbutz that, in spite of himself, uh, turned out to be kind of bookish. And he writes very, very acerbically, already in his uh, 20s, of um, the limits of the kibbutz stream in, in accommodating individuals and uh, the, 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 the loneliness, the estrangements can, that can uh, follow that. And uh, so I, I was always very, very moved by the fact that he revered the kibbutz, but he saw it as, as a system that was wonderful, but could never ultimately resolve what it means to be a flawed human being. That um, there was something very, very poignant in that struggle for him. And what's interesting to me about Amos Oz's career is that it's the catalyst for his earliest writing. And uh, he writes stories and also novels set in the kibbutz. Eventually he leaves, much, much later on, but only because a child has, uh, of his, has asthma and 
told by the doctor that they should try not to leave in an agricultural area anymore. And so we did another kind of pioneering by living in a very small development town above the Dead Sea, uh, raising his family there. But um, almost always eventually leaves the idea of the kibbutz entirely. And yet very late in life, as I, as I write in um, that chapter, he feels compelled to return to re-examine the meaning of the kibbutz. There's something very beautiful to me and very personal about that, in that once you spend time in kibbutz, you always look at the world through the eyes of the kibbutz. That's a filter that you you always have with you, and you're always thinking about issues like justice and, and equality um, through that experience. And and there's a kind of yearning for for bettering society, for demanding more society, for for requiring that society be self-critical. And I think that, that shines through uh, all those very, very uh, late stories, which came out a couple of years ago very beautifully. You, you mentioned when you um, were a young man and you um, moved to the kibbutz, you didn't have any idea of, of Palestinians or others. Um, tell us what's going on in Chapter 3. Who is Atala Mansur? Okay, Atala Mansur is a very, very interesting individual. He's still alive. And he uh, lives in Nasrat today. And he wrote uh, really the first uh, novel that a Palestinian wrote in Hebrew. He's uh, sometimes uh, a, a little bit under the radar, not sufficiently uh, regarded. There's more famous novelists. But he wrote a very provocative story um, about uh, an example of those who perpetually remain outsider to, to the kibbutz experiment. And one of the, my sharpest criticisms um, of the kibbutz is that it seems to be in many ways not at all uh, a tribal idea, but, but there's universal aspirations in it. And I've often thought that if the kibbutz, which was the preeminent uh, expression of Zionism for a very long time, if, if somehow more kibbutzim had found ways to accommodate uh, Arab Palestinians, there would have been a way to give them a greater sense of belonging, a, a, a greater claim to having built up Israel, which I think they deserve. And in Atala Mansour's novel, there's a way in which you see uh, a young person who's just come out of the bloody experience of 1948, suffered uh, very personal wrenching uh, losses in the war, is trying to reimagine himself, reimagine new possibilities for himself, by passing as a Jew in a kibbutz. And the response that he gets from that society, I think, is utterly fascinating. And Atala uh, Mansour uh, was one of the early Arab novelists, the Arab journalists working for uh, Israel's uh, version of New York, New York Times, uh, the newspaper known as Haaretz. And he wrote about the Palestinian concerns and life in East Jerusalem there. But he actually lived for a time. Uh, roughly a year in Shara Makim, which is a kibbutz in northern Israel. And uh, I think that he really understands what the kibbutz sought to achieve, but also is unsparing in, in talking about those that it excluded. And uh, other stories that I deal with, including some by Amos Oz, reveal that there's other, uh, others who are excluded, others that are lower on, on the Zionist hierarchy of um, of, of true belonging to Israel, and that includes Mizrahi Jews, uh, Jewish immigrants, um, Jews from who originated in the Arab countries, and the way their culture was completely dismissed and, and condescended to, and 
even when they um, were were allowed to join kibbutzim, uh, they were often discouraged from celebrating any kind of culture that wasn't uh, sort of Eurocentric. Uh, in chapter four, uh, an interesting chapter, it's um, you focus on psychological thrillers, mysteries, um, as we see uh, what you call disillusionment with uh, some of the values of the kibbutz. What's going on there? So Batyagur has this wonderful series, um, and I should say here that all of her uh, mysteries are available in English translation. And her murder on kibbutz was written at a really compelling time of transition. Everything that's happened to the kibbutz movement um, that we've seen uh, where two-thirds of all the kibbutzim have become privatized, uh, she's writing just when those uh, possi- the possibilities of those kinds of changes are being debated in the kibbutz movement. And they were highly contentious. And for the old-timers, the veterans of, um, of, of the kibbutz dream, those changes were literally unbearable. And so there's this uh, horrible crime, which is almost but not entirely unheard of, that takes place on, on the kibbutz uh, that she writes about in her novel. And the other thing I should add is that the uh, chief detective or protagonist in this novel, as well as her other novels, happens to be a, a Mizrahi Jew, a Jew of the Arab world. And he um, has his first foray in his entire life in the kibbutz while he's examining the murder. And in spite of himself, knowing that these people condescend to him and don't regard him as a, as a, true, um, as a true embodiment of civilization as they are, he, he still cannot resist uh, some of the, the, the alluring ideal aspects of kibbutz life. Uh, and then finally, chapter five, uh, after you've sort of described some of the changes that have gone on in the kibbutz, you mentioned privatization, people leaving the kibbutz. Um, we start to see in the last three, four decades uh, films about the kibbutz w- with a sense of nostalgia. Um, maybe start by telling us about Noah at 17. That seemed like a very interesting movie. So Noah at 17 is interesting, and I thought it was essential to address it. Uh, we're, we're not in kibbutz. We're in, a, we're in the life of a family that no longer lives on kibbutz, but the values of the kibbutz are still very, very much a part of their psychological and their, their emotional uh, makeup. And they're arguing at a time that many people in Israel are divided between whether Israel is going to be allied with the West or to the Soviet Union. And there were um, entire kibbutzim that split off because of this uh, debate, because of the intensity of it. It was, it was like a mini civil war in Israeli society, often forgotten about by Israelis today. But it, it was very consequential, and there were even family members who ended up not talking to each other for, for years and years or, or the rest of their lifetimes because of how bitterly this, this issue was struggled over. And what we see in Noah at 17 is the life of a very, very young woman who sees the hypocrisies of the adult world and the pain inflicted by those who are so doctrinaire that they lose, uh, they lose the possibility of, of really loving each other. And so as a young person, she learns something very, very valuable about the limits of, of ideology and, and uh, how short-sighted people are when they adhere more to ideology than they do to, to the needs of human beings. Noah 17 sheds light on what this can be for in the kibbutz movement and, and, and what happens afterwards. 
And it's a great character study. I think it's one of the most compelling portraits of a young Israeli uh, person because she eventually, um, uh, just as the adult world is collapsing around her, um, her relationships with the young people of her, her, her age who are all completely bound to their identity as members of the youth movement, all of that falls apart and she has to face the loneliness of being an actual individual because the youth movement can no longer uh, satisfy her. She's kind of evolved beyond beyond that, beyond the purity of belief, beyond the purity of conviction. So, you know, when I was reading your book, I thought there were all these um, binaries, right? There's the individual and the collective. There's the socialist enterprise and the capitalist country. There's Arab and Jew. Are these um, binaries or tensions um, sources of creativity? Uh, you know, cultural production comes out of that tension? I, I think so, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, especially the one concerning the individual and the collective, because I think that any healthy society is always going to debate this issue. What does the collective owe the individual, and what does the individual owe the collective? I happen to think that in our own society, that is a question not sufficiently considered, and of course, as we see um, this election uh, campaign uh, revving up right now in the pronouncements that uh, various people make, we really see that this is something that has not sufficiently been understood or grappled with in the United States. What's lost when we don't raise that question of what the collective owes the individual, what the individual owes the collective? So I think that while the kibbutz is often dismissed as no longer relevant and has, has succumbed to capitalism, that capitalism is one, so to speak, um, I think the jury may still be out on that. I, I even feel that with so much talk, every other week there seems to be a headline in some world newspaper, whether it's The Guardian or something else, about the end of capitalism. I think that we are living in an age of enormous anxiety, part of that because of terrorism, of course, but also because of the sense that the old models that were trusted uh, are, are no longer viable. And another way that I think the kibbutz uh, imagination um, is relevant and still resonates is that there are very real-world applications for the kibbutz. There's Africans who have recently been to Israel and examined the kibbutz in, a, in its original traditional form and decided to return uh, and apply its model to develop little kibbutzim in areas of the world where there's economic struggle and agricultural problems. So I think that the kibbutz still is a model. There's even been examples of young people applying it uh, to city life. In other words, completely obviously divorced from an agrarian context, from an agricultural context, but the idea of a commune that is giving to its community. Because one of the things that I should have said in the beginning, if we're going to distinguish the kibbutz from all of the communes uh, that preceded and followed it, is that while those often separated themselves from society, the kibbutz always thought of itself as a model uh, for society. Not only that, but as something that really needed to, to, to be a leader, to be a kind of elite, to contribute to society. Uh, Ronan, one, one final brief question. Um, how has researching and writing the book uh, changed the way you see the world? Well, I have to admit that writing this project, um, first of all, I, I, I'm one of those lucky scholars, I think, that has been able in a, in a number of books to be able to draw on lived experience. I did a book on the desert once. I did 
another book dealing with a military experience in Israel. And uh, these things have all been very much a part of me. But when it comes to the kibbutz and reading the intensity of self-criticism in, in the writings of kibbutz writers, it's made me realize that kibbutz narratives demand a kind of consciousness of the writer, a kind of honesty, and um, are very, very much about the struggle to create a better world. And uh, at the same time, I often came across uh, some of the wounding aspects of the struggle to create a utopia. And I had to wean myself away from my own nostalgia toward kibbutz. But I think that there's something in this uh, model of critical citizenship that the kibbutz still has to offer the world and that Israel itself has become uh, kind of impoverished by no longer being as interested or attuned uh, to the need to interrogate issues uh, concerning justice and equality, uh, and that the rest of us need to think about uh, that, that more, more seriously, what, what critical citizenship means. Renan, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, the book is Imagining the Kibbutz, Visions of Utopia in Literature and Film, published this year by Penn State University Press. The author is Ranen Omer Sherman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you.